Doug Storm, welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Honey from a Weed, about the life and work of visionary food writer Patience Gray. As we're in the midst of a holiday season that can so often feel like merely a smattering of one-off charitable acts and token expressions of fellow feeling, paired with a culturally enforced gluttony, it seemed appropriate to turn to a different kind of life, one which defines fasting and feasting in much different terms. As sweet gives to salt its distinguishing savor, a feast finds joy in breaking the fast. Honey from a Weed is the title of Patience Gray's most well-known book. It came out in 1986 at the height of Thatcherism in Britain and Reaganism in the U.S., and can be considered counterstatement to their ethos of acquisitive commercialism. But it knows this to be a kind of errand in the wilderness. The book opens with an epigram from Octavio Paz. Quote, man is nostalgia and a search for communion, unquote. Patience Gray seems to know that she is already too late. A weed might be said to represent valuelessness, and worse, perhaps, a thing which actively devalues what many consider to be the proper and true way of living. Yet the weed is honey to Patience Gray. In a 1987 London Review of Books essay, Angela Carter wrote of Honey from a Weed that it is, quote, like very few other books, Although it has some of the style of the 17th century commonplace book, replete with recondite erudition and assembled on the principle of free association, as when Mrs. Gray lists uses for goose fat, in a cassoulet, in soups, on bread, on toast, on your chest rubbed in in winter, on leather boots if they squeak, on your hands if they are chapped, unquote. Our opening song is Zingarella, or Gypsy Girl. Our music throughout is by Matteo Salvatore. Born in 1917 in the Apulia region of Italy, the heel of the boot, Salvatore was a composer and singer of popular music and an interpreter of traditional songs. His childhood was marked by Italy's post-World War I poverty and much of his music reflects this experience. He has been called the great poet of the poor. Our guide to the life of Patience Gray is Adam Fetterman a reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund of the Nation Institute. His writing has appeared in The Nation magazine, The Guardian, and Gastronomica, among many others. He is the author of a biography of Patience Gray, titled Fasting and Feasting, published by Chelsea Green. And now, Honey from a Weed, on Interchange, on WFHB. So it's probably not a surprise uh, to you, Adam, that I would say, who's Patience Gray? I've never heard of her before, um, but I'm not a, a food writer, food critic. Uh, I don't read in that area generally as well, but um, but the case is made throughout that she's very well known, at least in particular circles. Yeah, well, she, <clears throat> she, she did have uh, a profound impact on a small circle of food writers and critics, but I should say that you know, I, even as a uh, someone who admires food writing, you know, I had never heard of Patience Gray either until mm. after she died in 2005. So even within that sort of milieu, there are a lot of people who, who have never heard of uh, Patience or come across her work. So you're certainly not alone <laughs> right. in that regard. And, and, you know, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because I felt there was this paradox at the heart of her story, uh, which was that a small circle of people felt she was 
uh, one of the great food writers ever. Uh, and yet she had reached a, a, a very small audience. So it seemed to me that that was worth exploring. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about a lot of the reasons why she was both uh, considered an influence and, and also somewhat marginal. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, her book has stood the test of time, her books, I should say, but mm -hmm. but most uh, most significantly Honey from a Weed, which was published in 1986 or so just over 30 years ago. And, and that's really what she is uh, known for to the extent that, you know, she is known to the larger public. Right. And that is uh, obviously the, the key uh, perspective we're going to come from here as well, that particular book. And and it's its own look at the world as it was uh, and and the world as it might be heading as well, but an attempt to situate itself in almost um, an otherworldly place, a place that had gone by in some sense, but uh, one in which it seemed like Patience Gray might be trying to uh, recover a world that, that just wasn't around anymore. Um, but let's start, um, let's go ahead and start with why that book is famous. You, you mentioned it as being the book that will probably be remembered by people who do read uh, in that, that genre, but also just uh, maybe as a writer. Uh, it's clear that she's a great writer as well, at least from this book. Uh, but she's a, uh, she had been a cookbook writer before, at least had one cookbook, right? Um, in er, early anyway, 1957. So uh, this is a, this is a, a wide span of career that uh, between those two books, 57 was the first book, and then this one in 86. Um, is it best to start with her life in general, Adam, or do you want to you want to sort of look at Honey from a Weed as um, as a kind of cultural experience first? Uh, it it does almost become a fairly immediate uh, hit. Might not be the right word for it, but it, it becomes fairly important quickly, right? Yeah, it was hailed as a classic right away. Gourmet magazine here in the United States uh, described it as a, uh, you know, what, what would most certainly become a classic. It was raved about by uh, food writers, both here in the U.S. and in, in England. Uh, and it, um, you know, at that time, Patience was, was nearly 70. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some people remembered her first book, Plat du Jour, which was also, uh, you know, interestingly enough, was also a, a best-selling cookbook at, uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, a very different kind of book than, than Honey from a Weed. Uh, but but um, the book, I guess it, it would probably be useful to describe the book a little bit. Yeah. You know, it, it is highly unconventional, and that's one of the reasons why it took patients so long to find a publisher. It's mm -hmm. just it was not the kind of book that, that, that most uh, publishers wanted to take uh, a risk on and you know it's part memoir it's part autobiography uh, it's it's uh i think really a sort of a ethnography hmm. uh, and kind of cultural study of of the the places that the patients and her partner the belgian sculptor norman moments that they lived in for really for over four decades they left london in the early 1960s so the book brings together these many threads and the many really the many interests that patients had and and you know just so happens that food was uh and cooking was was the lens that she used to to kind of examine them this is doug storm on interchange we're talking with adam fetterman about patience gray the visionary food writer best known for her 1986 book honey from a week oh, 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 oh. 
Let's start, uh, Adam, actually with the title. Uh, that's maybe a good way to just walk into it. Uh, Honey from a Weed is the, the ti- main title. It's got, a, a, I guess, a kind of subtitle to it as well uh, that your book itself uh, plays, uh, plays with as well, right? Fasting and Feasting is the that's subtitle, and it gives uh, where she's uh, fasting and feeding as well, uh, feasting. Right. Yes, and in fact, in fact, fasting and feasting was the original working title for the book. Mm. And, and "Honey from a Weed" came uh, much later. It's a, a, from a poem by a, a British poet named William Cowper. Mm-hmm. They whom truth and uh, wisdom lead uh, c- can uh, gather honey from a weed. Uh, and and it, it, it patience had a, a lifelong interest in edible wild plants and, and fungi. Uh, and Honey from a Weed, of course, in, in large part, addresses the edible wild plants of the Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, so it just kind of captured the, the, the story that Patience was trying to tell and, and also is, uh, of course, uh, poetic. So I, I think when it uh, rose to the surface, it, it, it uh, quickly became the, the title of choice and, mm. and Patience stuck with it. Well, it, it is evocative, right? Honey from a Weed is a, is a, a personal as well as a, even a political stance at the time. Yeah, and, and you know, weeds have a, a pretty bad reputation. <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not something people seek right. to uh, cultivate or, or even really understand. Well, and, is that, what does weed mean in the first place? Is it simply an uncultivated plant, a plant that can't make you a crop? Or, I mean, what, how do we designate plants, weeds, or not weeds? Excellent question, and I think it probably varies depending on where, you, you know, the culture you live in. I, mm-hmm. I think in the industrialized West, you know, weeds are... Uh, account for just about anything that interferes with uh, the production of a crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, as as you know, patients points out in her book, weeds were a fundamental part of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, and if you know how to identify them and use them and and cook with them, you know they're they're a remarkable resource. So that's one of the lost worlds that she kind of uh, resurrects in mm-hmm. in her book. So the again the the book Honey from a Weed is a an, in a sense a uh, almost a revision not a revision but a um, a capping or culmination of a life lived almost a second life lived right it's uh, it's um, if we if we think of in some sense as as plat du jour as as kind of the end of one life and Honey from a Weed kind of the capstone of another life in terms of uh, coming to understand the culture in which you live that's kind of an interesting way to to perceive. Uh, uh, patient's life itself, right? Yes, it's a very, yeah, I mean, it, it does capture both periods of her life uh, in, a, in a remarkable way because she did have these two very distinct chapters. And, and Honey from a Weed, of course, is an account of the years that she spent traveling uh, around the Mediterranean and then finally settling in 1970 in, in the far south of Italy. But, uh, you know, she had had this this whole other life before then. In, in England and, and, and London and, and the war and her children raising two children out of wedlock, uh, working in the 1950s and, and raising her kids, a uh, career as a, a journalist and translator, uh, artist to some extent, and then finally publishing uh, Plat du Jour in 1957. So, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do is, is to explore that earlier life because uh, Honey from a Weed, although it's uh, a very personal book. It really just gives you a very small uh, portion of of the the rich and complex life that patients lived. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing to imagine biography, right? And understanding, you know, how people become interesting in themselves as 
as uh, subjects of a, of a book, uh, uh, again, pointing to these particular titles, Honey from a Weed, as it became an instant classic, as you say, uh, almost uh, maybe uh, not necessarily guarantees one uh, further interest in, in uh, uh, an interest in the life, but uh, having been a writer and writing throughout a, a large portion of her life, it's it's interesting to imagine even thinking about biography um, when you're in that life. So uh, I I can't. As far as I can tell from what I've read, it it wouldn't be something she'd necessarily have wanted you to do, right? <laughs> Write a biography about her. Yeah, I think she probably would have had very mixed feelings. Uh, you know, she did leave behind a remarkable body of of letters and unpublished work. And she, toward the end of her life, it was clear that she was trying to uh, preserve them to mm. some extent. So, for whatever reason, I don't know. She she did write a, a memoir, which she published basically self-published in, in Italy in 2000. And she explored some of the ideas, themes of, of autobiography, but she, she liked to blend fact and fiction. And she was quite, um, you know, uh, liberal in her uh, <laughs> definition of what autobiography uh, was, uh, what it meant to her. But, uh, you know, speaking personally for me, mm-hmm. of course, when I went into this 10 years ago, I, I didn't, uh, think I'd write a biography Hmm. and I knew her only you know through Honey from a Weed which is fascinating in and of itself but I had really little uh, sense of of just how interesting her life had been so it was only after uh, spending quite some time looking through her letters and and uh, talking with her children and people who knew her that I really felt like it was a story that that should be told. It's time for a break. This is Move la Bella Mia dalla Montagna, another from Matteo Salvatore. When we come back, the two lives of visionary food writer Patience Gray. Stay with us for more interchange on WFHB. Move la Bella Mia dalla Montagna.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show tonight is about visionary food writer Patience Gray, best known for her 1986 instant classic, Honey from a Weed, which orients cooking and living in a nostalgia for Italy's peasantry. But there was another more cosmopolitan success nearly 30 years prior in London. Gray co-authored the 1957 cookbook Plat du Jour, which sold over 50,000 copies its first year. Let, let's look a little bit at the at the first uh, segment of her life. Then I suppose, if if you want to, if if it's easy enough to section it out that way, it does seem that way. Uh, it does seem like almost a, a complete break and a move in a different direction, almost as if Patience Gray were two separate people entirely. Um, the first uh, being, as you say, uh, um, having to go through uh, the Second World War and what that formative experience is like, and then moving into a career as well. Let's go ahead and, if you don't mind, sketch just sketch the that first phase of life. Sure. So she was born in 1917, October 31st, Halloween. Mm. Um, uh, into a, a relatively well-off family, one of three sisters, and uh, patients had the good fortune of uh, going off to boarding school as a young woman and traveling quite a bit uh, throughout Europe and Eastern Europe uh, as, a, as a young woman uh, and eventually going on to the London School of, of Economics, um, which were opportunities that her, her sisters did not have. Uh, however, she resisted the, the conventions of, of family life as well, and, and in her memoir is, is pretty tough on her, on her parents. Uh, but, but she always sort of had a, a, a flair for, you know, adventure and uh, uh, taking risks, I suppose. And, and, of course, on the eve of, uh, of the Second World War, she, she meets this man named Thomas Gray, uh, who had a, a somewhat checkered past, uh, and uh, of course the father of, of Patience's children. Uh, but, but she left him soon after and, and went to live in her mother's cottage in a, a primitive, um, relatively isolated village in, in rural England during the, the the height of the war. So here she is, essentially on her own, raising these two little kids and and dealing with all of the. Um, you know, all of the, the restrictions that were imposed on people during the war. Uh, so that period was, as you mentioned before, was 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 formative and, and um, patients came out of it, I think, uh, a different person and, uh, uh, you know, quickly moved back to London and kind of resumed the the life she had been living as a student to some extent, you know, very much part of the, the artistic bohemian world in post-war London, friends with the uh, uh, really fascinating and influential circle of designers and art artists and architects. Uh, and, and, you know, she really thrived in that, in that world. You know, I, I, one of the things that I found so interesting is that even though she later lived this somewhat ascetic and, uh, off the beaten path kind of life, you know, in London, she'd been very much part of the, the social scene and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she, she enjoyed that, that world as well. Hmm. Do you get a sense uh, in doing research and in, in finding out about her that there 
there is a reason for that break. You know, there, uh, you know, as you, as you discover, as she gets more success, I mean, she's a very successful person at the time as well, a capitalist success story in some sense, post-war success story as a woman as well, right? She's, she's, uh, she's a career woman in a lot of ways. She's, uh, she's also, as you say, in the social mix, uh, and, and somewhat of, uh, a mover and a shaker, right? Mm, Yeah. You know, she, she lived. She lived in Hampstead, uh, a, a neighborhood in the north of uh, the city, uh, which at that time was was full of artists and exiles, refugees. Uh, and you know, after the success of Plateau Jour, she lands a job at the Observer, one of the leading post-war papers, as uh, editor of the the Women's Page. So she she's got a, a, a career as a journalist. She's a, a published author. She she certainly could have written more cookbooks at that time that mm-hmm. the whole cookbook and food writing world was just taking off. But I, you know, the, the decisive factor really was her, uh, her, her meeting Norman moments mm. who would become her lifelong partner. And, and they would eventually marry many, many years later, but she met him in 1958 and Norman was becoming increasingly disillusioned with his own, uh, life and I guess choices as an artist in, in London at that time and and patience too you know she felt that she was writing about people making art but not making anything herself hmm. so they, they come together and that precipitated this this break which in 1962 they left for Carrara and uh, although they would go back to London throughout the 1960s uh, you know that that was essentially the, the beginning of uh, you know this this odyssey <laughs> This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're talking with Adam Fetterman about Patience Gray, the visionary food writer best known for her 1986 book, Honey from a Wheat. This is the the I guess the the factor that that changes everything. Um, do you imagine the sort of privations of the war years enable someone to? to feel the ability to sort of get back to not having very much. Um, she, as, as we noted, she was successful. She, uh, that first cookbook sold in something like 50,000 copies. Um, as you say, she'd become a successful journalist as well. Um, but they were about to embark on a life that, that had little in the ways of, uh, modern, uh, trappings, I suppose. Right. Yeah. You know, they, to an extent, they, they, consciously chose to live without those conveniences and and uh they spent a year on the greek island of naxos for example where you know during at least the winter months uh there there was almost nothing in the way of of fresh produce Mm -hmm. Uh, when they moved to puglia in 1970 and this is where they lived for for more than 30 years they had no electricity no telephone uh, and just basic, you know, plumbing with cold water. So they they lived uh, a, a rustic life by by any um, sense of the word. And I think to an extent, the war years did prepare patients for that kind of uh, kind of life. And and even when she lived in London, she she kind of romanticized a uh, uh, a simple you know way of life. And and that was certainly something that she and Norman pursued together. Uh, both bringing their own kind of uh, influences and, and ideas about what that what that meant. 
Hmm. And so they went to Greece as a, 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 in a kind of a search for a, a kind of marble that, that Norman was working with? Right. So, right. You know, they, the, the places they lived in had always had some kind of connection to the stone that, that Norman was working in. And there were marble quarries of, uh, um, just outside the, the little village of Apollonus that they, that they lived in. Uh, and this was extremely remote. I mean, they took a, something like an 18 hour ferry ride from Athens to, uh, Naxos to the Island. And then it was a, uh, you know, a 12 hour drive over the mountains to this tiny little village, which was completely, you know, cut off from, uh, the, the rest of the world basically. Mm-hmm. So here they were. Uh, and, and, and I think that that, that experience for both of them was, was profound. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, they, they never quite lived in, in such circumstances after that, but I think in a sense, they, they always kind of sought to, to emulate the, the way of life that they, uh, that they were able to to cultivate on Naxos. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, get, were you able to think about it in terms of how uh, patients would have uh, done this, could have done this without Norman? Uh, they they clearly are a pair, right? Yes. No. It's an interesting question. Uh, it, it's it's you know it's one of those what ifs. Sure. It certainly I certainly can imagine patients staying in London. In mm-hmm. fact. Uh, even though that would obviously have been such a different life, but but you could see her perhaps uh, staying and then continuing writing cookbooks and pursuing a very different kind of life. I, you know, I don't know if she would have embarked on such a on, on that uh, kind of a uh, uh, journey without Norman. Uh, you know, although she did have other, as I said before, she was she was very a very social person. She, another one of the in, great influences on her, on her and her uh, approach to food and cooking was a, a book collector and, and bookseller named Irving Davis, uh, and she met Irving was much older than than patients, uh, almost thirty years. She met him around the same time she met Norman, just after publishing Plat du Jour. And Irving also introduced her to a number of interesting people and places uh, in Europe. So, you know, who knows? Mm. Um, It would have been very different. Well, it does seem like they, I mean, it would be hard to live a life um, without some support system on some level, right? Uh, I guess it's almost hard for me to imagine, uh, as most things, (laughs) as most things outside of our own life are are sometimes difficult to imagine. Um, But, uh, you know, it does seem, it it, it does seem to almost require that, that um, uh, togetherness in some sense. Otherwise, it's a, it's a very solitary existence, even if you're um, social, like, uh, like, yeah. No, I think that to live that kind of life on your own would would be extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah. We we. I, it's interesting. I think at some point, um, patients had said that her uh, some period uh, during the war she had lived a, a Waldenesque existence. Um, uh, can you uh, clarify that for me? Yes, that that was uh, something she said about her her life during the war, and and in a sense, it was true. It was a very primitive, uh, basic existence living in this cottage and uh they you know they had no electricity uh um water came from a well uh and there was almost no uh contact with um uh 
certainly urban life, you know, this is the 1940s and, and during, during the, the second world war. So, but, but at the same time, you know, patience was, was, uh, raising two little kids and, and dealing with all of the complexities of, uh, making it through the war. So mm-hmm. it, uh, in, in that sense, it, there was nothing simple or easy about it. Right. Uh, but it was during that time that she did take an interest in foraging and wild foods, partly out of necessity and also just because patience was always drawn to nature hmm. and the beauty of the natural world. So that, that period was really important in that sense. And, and I do think that that is the, 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 the ma- main connection between, you know, that time and, and sort of where, where her life would end up going mm-hmm. and, and ultimately in the culmination of uh, Honey from a Weed. It's time for another break. Again, here's Matteo Salvatore with Cuntalor, or Catch the Hours. Stay with us for more about fasting and feasting, the life of visionary food writer Patience Gray, when Interchange returns. Spina di indulcore bene de costanente Tenesi giuta Te pensa I cammino Ne ne vai alla chiesa Senza te la vita mia è finita. Ogni ora ma per una giornata aspettando che da me. This is Interchange on WFHB. For this segment of Honey from a Weed, we'll try to situate Patience Gray's instant classic of food writing within its political and cultural moment. In 1986, the peasant as a class in Italian society was gone, and the countryside had already been marked by the toxic ways of agribusiness. I was going to ask one of the questions might be, uh, is is Honey from a Weed... Uh, also disdained the way Walden is by some people. There are very political responses or maybe temperamental responses to 
uh, a person that wants to propose that you you find a way to be outside your your current uh, maybe the wrong turn of the society that 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 yeah. has happened. Uh, that's Thoreau's point, obviously in Walden. Um, but Thoreau does not have a partner to live alone with, and he doesn't live alone for his life. Right? He lives alone for two years, and he's not even alone then. He's got friends and neighbors who come to visit him. So it's a very different actual existence. But the point of the book is to say the world has gone in a wrong direction. Uh, it, it's a it's an interesting observation, and I think it, it's it's striking in a sense that there 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 isn't much criticism at least not that i've encountered of <clears throat> honey from a weed hmm. because i think with any kind of book like that as you as you point out there there usually is some some kind of a uh, uh backlash to the the either the privilege or the um you know the fact that living that that way is is just not really an option for mm-hmm. people uh, but for whatever reason, Honey from Weed has, has, uh, you know, largely j- been celebrated, uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, not knowing much about the author or or her or her life has uh, shielded it to, mm. to some extent from some of the criticism that that uh, an author like Thoreau has encountered. But I don't know. Maybe with this biography and people, more people reading Honey from a Weed, you know, maybe the, there will be different. Um... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're 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 gonna call out the haters, Adam. <laughs> well, the um, this strikes me as a, a, a probably a, a, an interesting part of that, right? The the fact that uh, Thoreau became uh, canonized, um, and and from within the the school system of of capitalism basically right so uh one of the questions that you you would have to confront is how few people know honey from a weed you know it's not a a canonical work that you're forced to read in college or high school right exactly no it's more of a cult mm-hmm. classic if anything right it's got how it's I, got very yeah. it's got very um uh, adamant uh, followers and proponents Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it's true. I, I don't think it'll ever become a kind of canonical text, mm. uh, certainly not outside of the, the cooking world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let's move into that that perspective then. Uh, again, uh, as you mentioned already, um, uh, Norman and um, patients are are living a, a an austere life of of. of and uh, part of Patience's own aesthetic and her own drive in life is is beauty, um, is the beauty of of the natural world and the way that not the natural world can be used, um, and how uh, generally the society that we've created has gone in the other direction. Uh, so she is, in a sense, uh, living a life that that isn't lived anymore. Um, even even in the places she's living it, right? So she's she's almost um, a nostalgic throwback within the class that she's living in at the time of, of this life as well, right? There are no peasants anymore. Yeah, yeah, and and it was something that she struggled with in her own writing, sort of how to present that hmm. fact, because I, I think in part she wanted to show that on the one hand these traditions and uh, ways of living and, and, and cooking uh, did still uh, survive, but she couldn't ignore the fact that 
they survived in a very kind of uh, diminished state. Mm. And in, in Honey from a Weed, in the introduction, she talks about the fact that she's writing about a, a way of life that's fast disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she she also held out hope that 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 elements of that way of life could be uh, maintained. And 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 I think Honey from a Weed is an attempt to to uh, capture some of the things that that she felt were so important about. Uh, you know, not only the way that she and Norman lived, but the way that, you know, some of the, the people that they lived among, you know, continued to uh, continued to interact with the natural world mm-hmm. and uh, the world around them. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're talking with Adam Fetterman about Patience Gray, the visionary food writer best known for her 1986 book, Honey from a Weed. Uh, again, it's a it's a, a point in which we we confront the sort of mechanistic uh, synthetic world we've created, and and the ways in which we stopped knowing, understanding, um, feeling the world around us. Um, right. And this is you know exemplified by her life, and in this book, Honey from a Weed, as well. Absolutely, uh, and you know she she spent decades learning from uh people who still understood that world intimately mm-hmm. and she acquired this remarkable body of knowledge that that as she uh pointed out you know was was uh disappearing so i think one of the things that 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 has made honey from a weed such a a unique book and, and a book that really stands apart is the fact that it it uh it, it's written by someone who who was living this this life not not someone who was passing through or uh dropping in for uh you know six months to write a cookbook mm-hmm. it, it reflects uh the culture and and traditions of of these places mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well um it, it is it, another thing that strikes me is that these things you know that, that her life itself starts to happen uh, in this in this way, at the same time that uh, you know we're beginning to get um, uh, exposés in a sense on the world as it, again as it's taking what we must think of as a destructive turn at least at this point. Um, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, uh, Murray Bookchin's Our Synthetic Environment, to both early '60s books, um, when when I guess uh, patients in her own way, uh, checks out of the society that she'd been living in. Um, and then sort of writes a book that I, I think you would, could you put on the shelf with Silent Spring? I mean, would you read them together and say that they were mm-hmm. complementary in some ways? In, in, a, in a way, you know, Patience's book is, is far less uh, polemical mm-hmm. or even, um, uh, gloomy, uh, <laughs> right. rather, you know, it's not an expose. There's nothing investigated about it, but, but patience does, I I think in a way she, you know, she, she had to acknowledge what was happening to the environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I think the book is in a sense, a a response to, to that. And of course it, it emerges right at the, the, the moment that the, the slow food movement uh, is, is kind of first uh, appearing and I, I I do think there's a relationship. It's just that they're 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 such different uh, different mm. uh, 
you know, works of, 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 uh, of writing. Right. Uh, I guess one thing that struck me too, is the sense that, uh, that patience was a writer, not so much a food writer. Right. Yeah. Is that, is that, is that something that you'd say? I think very much so. And I Mm -hmm. think that's probably how she saw herself. Food writing was almost something she just happened into. Mm -hmm. Uh, when she wrote Plat du Jour, her first book, she knew really very little about food and cooking. Uh, her, her real education in in that world kind of began after that. Mm. And, and she was, you know, she loved literature. She loved fiction. She spoke several languages. Uh, and she, as I said earlier, you know, she wrote uh, wonderful letters. Uh, and, and she wrote several books that, that, that are not cookbooks. They're, they're much less well-known. Uh, but, but I think she always did see herself as really as a, a mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, woman of letters. Mm-hmm. So to do you, uh, in, in the course of doing uh, your biography, did you get a sense that it would be, is it another project to, to publish letters? Are they, are they the kinds of letters that, that other people would enjoy for their, their literary merit as well? Uh, undoubtedly, not only their literary mer- merit, but their, their aesthetically, many mm-hmm. of them are, are just extraordinary uh, in fact, I, I, there is one that I reproduce in the book with one of Patience's drawings in it, mm. and it gives you a sense of, of, of just the kind of uh, care and thought that she put into her letters. Uh, one of those has, has been uh, excerpted and p- posted online by the Paris Review. And I mean, I think that a collection of her letters would be, would be wonderful. Mm. Uh, so, who knows? There's certainly plenty to, to choose from. <laughs> it's time for our final break. This is Le Chiquiere du Le Paisi, or The Girls from the Country, sung by me magna la pulente, me magna la pulente, prima ma botte pumalente, me magna la pulente, prima ma botte pumalente, prapata pumba pumba, papata papa pumba pumba L'acqua all'umere, la farina all'umulinere, chi pecora ci fa, lo lupo ce l'ha da magna, chi pecora ci fa. Aspetta ciuccio mio quando viene la paglia nuova, a voglio tu arreggiacqua de paglia non ce ne sta, a voglio tu arreggiacqua de paglia non ce ne sta, prapata pumba pumba papata papata pumba pumba Quando c'è zappe, quando c'è puto, non tengo ziene, non tengo ne puto. Quando è tempo di vedignare, ziene di qua e ne puto di là. Quando è tempo di vedignare, ziene di qua e ne puto di là. Welcome back. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. For our final segment of Honey from a Weed, biographer Adam Fetterman discusses the way Patience Gray and her partner 
the sculptor Norman Mommens, conscientiously and deliberately cultivated a life of simplicity and community, and what lessons we can take from her great book. So let's let's move into what I, I, I can't discern a politics per se. Like the you know, obviously I've been hitting hitting politics a little bit with uh, obviously Rachel Carson and Thoreau as well. Uh, people who make a particular stand uh, against something, and I think she's doing this as well. But the the point about. Um, uh, living a simple life isn't just about living a simple life. It's understanding the other life you're being asked to live um, and sort of uh, giving up something that is human in this current way of living. You know, the discovery of what is and what had been human, working with your hands, working till you're exhausted, working so that there's joy in the work itself. Um, these are things that are hard to discern when we discuss them, because we tend to discuss them from from our our leisure, um, right. we discuss them as if you're like, oh, would you? Oh, it, the nostalgia of uh, a life that had to have been difficult for many people and continues to be difficult for people, uh, and then to have the privilege to think of that think of that as a uh, an a good existence, but not understanding that it that it could be one, right? That it could have been one, that it was one, but it can. But we narrate it usually as a very hard life, and isn't it great we don't have to dig in the dirt anymore? Well, you know, people have spent uh, <laughs> centuries, I guess, trying to escape that right. kind of life. Uh, so to return to it, you you do have to make the case for it, and, and I think patience does in her own way. And even though the politics aren't there on the surface, I do think it is worth pointing out that that Patience and Norman were very much influenced by the kind of radical ecology of of the time. And they subscribed to, you know, Resurgence magazine, uh, which was founded, I think, in the mid 60s. And and, and Norman was uh, friends with uh, the philosopher Leopold Kor, who mm. coined the phrase, uh, you know, small is beautiful. Mm. Uh, and so these ideas were definitely they were right there. Uh, you know, Norman was also influenced by one of his teachers, and was a uh, designer and architect named Weideveld, and, and they had this whole I, uh, idea to create a artistic community, uh, you know, somewhere in Italy that would be kind of a, a, a school, and uh, uh, Norman called it a wonder house. You know, he's very utopian, and, mm. and uh, these this quest to find a place to live and work was was fueled in a sense by that that uh desire to create something larger than than just you know two people living mm-hmm. out on the edge of the world mm-hmm. so they were very much a product of of that kind of back to the land ethos that was um simmering mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s well, I have done a couple of conversations where, you know, we talk about the ways in which, you know, we've created communities around food, uh, grain in particular. Jim Scott has a book uh, coming out soon and has had many that, you know, talk about the way the state uh, is able to organize because the food uh, is created a certain way. So grain is 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 a, a crop that you make all in one place, and it gathers people to one place, and people can be managed that way. Um, and one of the 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 key things about guerrilla warfare, I guess, in 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 tropical areas at least, uh, is that they eat cassava root. 
because it's you know something that can be planted anywhere. It's, it's almost hidden when it's planted in that uh, in that uh, type of area, and it can't be confiscated by the state. Uh, there's a kind of like weed orientation in that world as well. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, relying on on these edible wild foods and understanding them and being able to use them, it, it is obviously a, a mode of survival. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, one of the things that patients encountered when they moved to Puglia in 1970 was that, you know, most people wanted to forget the period during the war when they, they had to rely, you know, primarily on weeds, you know, and figs as the sort of uh, staples of the diet. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, that wasn't something that they had fond memories of. But at the same time, it was what, you know, got them through that period of, of, uh, of privation. Um, so it's a, it's just, it is a remarkable, uh, I think we tend to, to perhaps, um, overlook just how fundamental it is to, uh, how societies organize themselves, perhaps because we're, we're, we're so disconnected from mm-hmm. the, the mode of production. Right. Yeah. And you know, one thing that you, I think you, you, if, if you didn't write in the book, there was an article that you wrote as well. Um, but you, you talked about how in, even in these cultures that, uh, the stigma of poverty is attached to gathering weeds uh, as well. And it struck me for the first time, I think, that I, I recognized in the phrase itself, you know, you're, you make those assumptions, right? There's a stigma and yep. it's attached, right? It's not like poverty, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you, you force on a person in an economic fashion, right? You force this idea that because you, you do this thing, you are less than, yeah. Um, and it's, it just struck me that it's interesting uh, to to not only promote it, but but sing its praises. Right. This is this is not just about eating. It's about knowing the world. Yes. And valuing these these plants. You know, I, I interviewed someone who knew patients and, and who was from Puglia. And she said that it wasn't that people had lost the knowledge of of how to identify and use these plants. It was that they they. Um, felt that to, to, you know, they, they had been stigmatized, you know, mm-hmm. by the fact that, that they, they'd had to rely on them. So to see, to have someone like patients come along and say, no, no, these, these, this is a, a, a something that that's worth preserving and, 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 and keeping alive, uh, I think sort of helped at least this particular person look at it with, with new eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're talking with Adam Fetterman about Patience Gray, the visionary food writer best known for her 1986 book, Honey from a Weed. Well, there's a point, too, where um, I think, you know, there it's discussed again about how how this is about um, involving your whole being in a thing, right? Uh, and and involving a uh, a social aspect of of eating uh, with people, uh, making food for people. This is not uncommon. We're not breaking new ground here, saying that eating is a communal act. But uh, but part of what what's important is understanding the needs of the community as well, the needs of your guests. Uh, but but how you interact within the world as you live it. You know, it's a kind of moment-to-moment understanding of your very flesh in the world, 
um, that seems to spring out of this this project, right? To spring out of this life lived uh, almost as much for art, the art of living, the art of work. You know, this is kind of what's happening here. Yes, and and for patients and Norman, food and and gathering, you know, around the table was always a, a way of celebrating. Uh, you know, not just life, but but labor and and art and all of the things that they loved. Uh, they they were all connected, and that you know, although they lived, <clears throat> uh, you know, at the the very bottom of the the boot of the heel of Italy in a very remote place, they they there were constantly people uh, knocking on their door, and and especially during the summer months, you know, patients was frequently cooking for ten, fifteen, uh, twenty people, mm. and and it did have a very festive kind of communal uh atmosphere and and although norman never created his his wonder house it, it they, they did establish a a uh something of a, a cultural you know uh patients son nicholas always describes it as a cultural lighthouse a lot of local people gravitated to to spigolizzi the name of, of patients of norman's farmhouse and uh, you know i think that they 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 were able to in the end, cultivate the kind of life that they that they wanted, even if they perhaps didn't always know exactly, you know, where where it might end up. Mm. Well, there there's a sense that you know we need to try to make use of this, right? Um, and one assumes uh, an an author that brings out a book, uh, Honey from a Weed, wants us to make use of it. Um, mm-hmm. And as you do your work in in writing a, a biography of patients, you want us to make use of her somehow. You know what are the what are the primary things we can do, or we would want to make use of in this world where um, you know at best uh, you might have a garden plot, at best you might have a container garden on your back stoop, or you know in this world. Um, where most of us aren't able to go to the boot of Italy uh, and find, uh, you know, a, almost a, a, a paradise of emptiness in some sense. Um, how how do we make use of patience, Gray? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we cultivate our own gardens. I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, patience was never prescriptive, and, and, and she, she admired people who lived uh, on their own terms, not people who followed another's, uh, other people's footsteps. So she never would have wanted people to, to kind of adopt the lifestyle that she and Norman lived if it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that, you know, that she was very critical of, of other people and, and particularly young people who came down and, and thought that they wanted to pursue the simple life, but, but quickly realized that they, they, they were, really weren't up for it. <laughs> so it's a hard you know, life. She was, yeah, there's nothing simple about it, mm-hmm. but she was very supportive and encouraging of, of young people and anyone really who was pursuing, uh, you know, their own, you know, for lack of a better word, dream, uh, and, and willing to, to make sacrifices to, to do so. So, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty broad sort of message, but, uh, you know, we are living in a moment where there's a, a real interest in, in quote unquote, traditional ways of doing things, whether it's craft you know, food or, or, you know, you name it. So I think there is kind of a renaissance, but, um, you know, what does that really mean? Uh, you know, is it just a a passing whim or does it really, is it really something that's going to change the fabric of, of the way, 
people live and organize themselves? You know, it's it's a huge question. Yeah, it's uh, you know one of those things that we you confront in in terms of trying to understand what a what a person does by creating a thing. I, I think you while you might not say uh, other of her books are. Um, uh, like you say, well known. They're not as uh, maybe they're not as good. Even I don't know how to how to if you would ex, uh, if you would assess them in that way. But if you imagine that honey from a weed is a work of art, uh, and it doesn't need to necessarily do anything, then be something that you engage with in trying to understand it as a work of art. Um, do you see that as 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 plausible as anything else? I do think it rises to the level of. Of, of a work of art. And I think one of the, the great things it does is it, it, it gives people pleasure. Um, mm. it's a book people love and it's a book people read. Uh, in fact, it's a book people read more than they tend to, to actually use as a cookbook. Uh, but I think the message is inescapable. You cannot read the book without, uh, at least uh, my feeling is, is you, you can't read it without coming away, uh, feeling like, you know, there are other possibilities there are other ways of, of, engaging with uh, the world. That's our show. We'll go out listening to one last song by Matteo Salvatore. This is Le Nozze di Giannini, or Giannina's Way. Thanks to Adam Fetterman for joining me via Skype to talk about the life of Patience Gray, best known for her 1986 book, Honey from a Weed. Fetterman's biography is called Fasting and Feasting and is published by Chelsea Green. Next time on Interchange, the new cosmology and its prophets. Lisa Sedaris joins us to discuss her new book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. Mythologists join hands to write a new genesis, replacing religious terms with scientific ones while relying on the same old tropes. The new cosmology and its prophets. Next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. And Bryce Martin is our studio engineer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Stanotte, tanta wesh, tagliada. Fa presto e a comincia ta spoglia. La Giannina lo guardeva.